0: Hello and welcome to Season 3 of How to Grow a CMO, the podcast that helps you become a better marketing leader. I'm your host Ali Hussain, and this week I sat down with Lisa Campbell, CMO of OneTrust. In this episode, you'll hear why you and everyone in your team should spend a day sat next to BizDev, how curiosity makes you a better marketer, and the do's and don'ts of creating a new category. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: It's a pleasure to be here, Allie. Looking forward to the conversation.
0: Thank you. First question, how did you first get into marketing?
1: It's kind of uh, a different journey maybe than some others have had. Uh, I'm actually a computer science and mathematics undergrad, so you wouldn't necessarily think, oh, she's going to move into marketing. But what I found was I actually started off in IT and I was supporting applications for the sales and marketing organization where I was working. And I remember meeting with the VP of marketing and saying, here's all the different things that you guys need to be more efficient, more effective, build better relationships with customers. I remember he looked at me and he said, guess what? He said, you need to come in and work in marketing. So I moved over to the marketing organization, started working in product marketing. I had jobs in product management and kind of just took off from there.
0: That's fantastic. And I love that you started in the kind of the the cold face of product development and coding. How do you think that's influenced you as a marketer?
1: One of the things is I've spent my entire career in high tech. It has really been B2B kind of enterprise software. And I think the fact that I understand technology, that I've used technology helps to make me a better marketer because I can understand the domain. I have a great appreciation for technology. So I have a great appreciation for the product, the product that we sell. And always I'm very interested in what what problems does it solve? How does it make your life better? How can we make you more effective? And so I think that that helps. I think any marketer, if you love the product that you're actually selling um, and marketing out there, it just makes you more effective because you just have more of an affinity for it and you're more curious about it and you'll
0: learn about it. I completely agree. There's, um, I think there's a tendency to over rotate away from the product, not because it's always the right thing to do, but because I think some people struggle to understand it. And, and it's interesting in B2C that's really articulate brilliant writer called Dave Trott, who's um, one of probably most of the, one of the finest copywriters alive. And he tells a story about, as a young copywriter, looking to find reasons. He was given his first car ad and he thought, right, it's an amazingly exciting opportunity. Racked his brains, did every bit of work, turned over every stone that he could do for a few weeks and came up with nothing. Went back to his creative director and said, look, I'm trying so hard here. I've just got nothing. And the creative director just went to him, well, what have you gone and asked the product team why well, they developed the car in the first place yet? And of course, he hadn't thought that there was a huge amount of research and thinking that had gone into the design of this product for the users in the first place um, that he skipped over completely. And, And I think we struggle sometimes in B2B tech marketing because the product can be intangible and a little hard to understand. We're sometimes a little fearful of actually diving deep into that in order to get a proper understanding of it.
1: Yeah, it's interesting you should say that because I always encourage the marketers that work for me. I'm like, number one... Have you seen the product in action? Have you even tried to learn to do even a high-level demo? Can you do a demo? Why not learn and how to do it yourself? The other thing is talk to customers. Sometimes marketers shy away from that. Like you need to engage with customers, ask them questions. What keeps them up at night? What are their biggest challenges? Because if you actually don't have that knowledge, You can't market as well because you're just not close enough to what the problem is and you're not close enough to what the technology is.
0: So true. Two of the hardest things. So obviously I work for an agency. Two of the hardest things to get clients to do sometimes are to let us speak to customers and to let us see the products in action. And they seem to be so obvious that it's important, but but sometimes more of a challenge than it should be. Could I... Talk a little bit about your career then, since you you managed to bail out of coding, which would have been, I'm sure, financially unviable for you, um, and into marketing, a far more rewarding career. Where did you go then from that original space you worked in? How did you work through different businesses to where you are today?
1: You know, I have had one of those careers that is more of a zigzag versus linear. And I always tell people, try different things, different experiences. So I'll tell you, you know, I managed an IT development group. Um, I've managed a service of the organization in my past. I have managed a business unit. So I know what it's like to be GM of a business unit. I managed and learned an e-commerce business because all of my experience had been really more direct selling and partner selling. And I wanted to learn self-service. So I signed up to say, help me, you know, have the opportunity to build our e-commerce business. I've run industry strategy. So I like to encourage people to get all these different experiences because I think that actually helps make you. A much stronger marketer because you walked a mile in these other shoes and you've had exposure to customers from different perspectives. I always tell people every interaction with a customer either builds trust or it breaks trust. And so if you have these different interactions with customers, I mean, I've even had some of my marketers listen in for a day on support calls. I think it's really important. You should just sit next to somebody who's handling support calls all day or sit next to what we call a business development rep, somebody like inside sales and listen in on the conversations that they're having every day because then you're going to understand what it's like to try to interact with the customer with the messaging and positioning that we're producing. You can see what resonates and what doesn't resonate. And so I think that's the different experiences that I got by kind of doing the zigzag and I encourage other people to do the same.
0: It's lovely to hear. I've had the opportunity to sit next to business development reps and it was a bracing experience as a strategist. The first time I did that, and I thought I'd created this perfect messaging, you know, STP, all locked and loaded, happy to go. And um, and then I had to sit next to an inside sales person whilst they were calling the target audience and discovered that actually my supposedly perfect thinking did have a fair few holes in it and had to adapt accordingly. But a, a brilliant learning experience for any marketer. I think you're right.
1: Yeah, I remember sitting next to somebody at inside sales at my previous company and you know, while the customer was asking questions, I was jotting things down on a notepad next to the person to say, here's something that you could say. And I realized that's where we had holes in maybe our training us also. I was like, Oh, we need to train people better. We need to help them understand the different kind of questions that they'll get and have them be a little bit more agile and nimble on their feet.
0: Absolutely. The source of so much wastage as well in organizations where there's too much friction between sales and marketing or too much of a gap that ability of sales to to help shape and bring in that voice of the customer into, into marketing, into the rest of the organization is such a wasted opportunity if it doesn't happen.
1: Yeah, it's funny that you should say that I, you know, you'll probably ask me this later and I'll give you the same answer. One of the critical relationships, because there's many that a CMO needs to have is has a really, really tight collaborative relationship with the head of sales. That, that really needs to be a partnership because at the end of the day, that's how it's all gonna get done is you have to have this tight partnership. Marketing, in many cases, I know it's been true for me in my career, we produce quite a bit of the pipeline. So we're really partners in pipeline. And so you really have to have that
0: collaborative relationship. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I know that's a well-worn narrative, the relationship between marketing and sales. The two areas as well that I'm interested in, marketing, developing further relationships between marketing and product as well, which obviously you're in an amazing position to do given your background. Um, but also marketing the CFO. I feel like uh, we often complain from a distance about not being recognized as a growth engine for the business, but don't always take the steps um, necessary to make that happen.
1: Yeah, that's another critical relationship. I think marketing in the CFO is absolutely critical. And in fact, I think it's been getting stronger and stronger over the years. And any of my colleagues, we talk about, you. there's actually this really good book out there that I was reading. It's called Marketing is Not a Black Hole. And it's really to talk about how do you start to have more meaningful conversations with the CFO? I mean, a CFO is, is cognizant of, Hey, we're spending money here. What's the return on investment? Do we know what the return on investment is? Is this something that's worthwhile or should we be doing capital allocation in a different way? Yet when you're a marketer, what you need to do is you need to be able to come back with the best data that you can to talk about the different things that you're trying to achieve. And it's not just always pipeline. There's awareness, there's affinity for your brand. There's many different things out there and there's not sometimes just one discrete measurement that you say, yes, because this number is this, that's why it's successful. So there really also has to be an education between the two where you work with your CFO to say, these are the things that I can have concrete measurements on. These are the things where we use perhaps two or three different kind of measures to see if we're moving the ball, we're moving it forward. And also in marketing, it's not a one quarter thing. Sometimes it takes us a year. You're trying to build a brand. You're trying to build brand awareness. It's not going to happen because of one campaign that ran for a month. It's going to be something that's actually cumulative that you have to run for several months or several years until that builds up. And I think that's kind of the relationship that has to be built there. Because a lot of times, obviously when it comes to finance and the sales, it's it's the quarter, right? Either you hit your number or you don't hit your number. Sometimes it can be very black and white, where I think in marketing, sometimes we have more gray.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, it's so hard for for anyone in an organization not to fall into that trap of the the immediate data in front of you is the most powerful data there is. Can I? draw us back to thinking about your career a little bit more. So I know that one of the places you previously worked is Autodesk. So could you tell me a little bit about your experience working there and how that's differed to your experience working now at OneTrust?
1: Yeah, so I had an amazing career at Autodesk. It's a fabulous company. I was there for 18 years and it was wonderful, one, because of what the company does. Basically at Autodesk help people design and make the world around us. So it's pretty impactful. You can see that the technology that you're developing has a direct impact on the world around you. And when I decided to leave, I moved to OneTrust and I couldn't move to a company that didn't have huge purpose and huge impact. And the wonderful thing about OneTrust is we are creating an entirely new category of SaaS software called trust intelligence. And that sometimes is a once in a career life opportunity just because Sometimes you're working for a company that did create a new category of software, and now you're in the middle of that journey, but in OneTrust, we're at the ground floor because we just created this category. And the purpose of our company is wonderful because we help companies build trust, and we're their partner on their trust transformation journey. So what does that mean? We have four clouds: privacy and data governance, GRC and security assurance, ethics and compliance, and ESG and sustainability. Every single one of those has a huge impact on people and planet. So every company we work with is trying to become a more trusted company to do better for people, to do better for planet, to make sure they're respecting our privacy, that they're collecting data for the right purpose, that they're securing that data, that they're really respecting what your preferences are. Same thing with our security assurance and compliance and helping you discover your data, catalog your data. So Really a big impact. And so I was really excited to move from Autodesk to OneTrust because one, I got big mission, big purpose that I had at my previous company, which is highly motivating. People who work at OneTrust are passionate about the impact that we have. And our customers are passionate about what they do. So it's been a lot of fun. And creating the element SaaS category, it's it's not an easy journey. And it's been one that's been a lot of fun. And obviously we're still in the middle of that journey. But like I said, it can be sometimes a a once-in-a-lifetime career opportunity.
0: I wanted to ask you more about that because creating a category is one of those exciting, crunchy challenges that every marketing leader loves and fears probably in, in equal measure. What have you learned about the do's and don'ts of creating a category at OneTrust and also any any previous places you've been?
1: Yeah, so many people, and I, I worked in Silicon Valley for almost uh, 20 years, and there was a popular book called Play Bigger, which really kind of gives you I don't want to say a formula, but a framework for launching a new category of software. So here's one of the things that you learn. The first thing is, is the company has to be all in. You can't just have this be a marketing idea. The entire company needs to be all in and supportive, including the CEO and your board of directors that you're creating this new category. And you have to put a lot of thought and effort into what is your portfolio How do you move from being a product company to a platform company so that people understand that if they subscribe to your platform, in the case of what we're doing, where we are a SaaS company, that they're getting all of the capabilities that they need to actually create what the category is that you're saying. It gives them intelligence around trust and how to become a more trusted company. The other thing is you have to be really clear on what is your messaging and positioning. How are you different from companies who are offering siloed capabilities, Because when you're trying to be a platform company in a whole new category, you're saying, we can solve all these end-to-end problems. And they're usually competing against point players, right? Or niche players. You really have to understand your message. How are you different? Why is it better to buy this platform and subscribe to it versus doing something different? You should make sure that your pricing and your packaging is in place so that it's not just words on a picture. People are saying, oh, Yes. I mean, the way you offer is actually a whole new category of software. I can see how I'm subscribing to this platform and that it's not just a bunch of features that you're offering me. You've got to train your sales organization. You've got to train your services organization. So that's why it involves the entire company to make sure that at the end of the day, it's not about an event. This is not what I call a launch and leave. It wasn't about, I had this big event I had all the pomp and circumstance. I went out there, I said, look what, we have a new platform out there, or we have a new category. It's actually your new business, your business model, and it's in every interaction that you have going forward every day, and you're improving upon it every day.
0: That is invaluable advice, thank you. And one of the, the thorniest and most exciting problems areas for any marketer. One area I'm also interested in is, how do you go about pricing in a new category? Because that to me seems like an opportunity to make massive differences to the bottom line.
1: It is, but we have a customer centricity about what we do. So the the first thing is, it's kind of interesting. Our customers say to us, we would prefer to have platform pricing. Number one, it's easier for them to manage. It's easier for them to budget. And it's actually easier for them to grow into it. So if I subscribe to something that has, say, I don't know, 15 major capabilities, and I'm going to start off with just using five of them. I know that I have access to all these others as my company expands in its journey, and I'll be able to start using those others. So I can really be able to do it at my own pace, but I can budget for it. And I know that I have these capabilities. I don't have to worry about every time you have a new release, do I have that capability or don't I have that capability? You know, if you subscribe to that platform, you most likely have access to that capability. And from a pricing perspective, we want to price on value. So we do a lot of research. It's very research-based. You go out, you do conjoint studies, you talk to customers, and you really try to understand what is the value that a customer is willing to pay for. It's not just an art. It's very much a science. There's lots of modeling. And at the end of the day, we're trying to have a win-win. We want it to work for our customers, but it also has to work for us as a company. And by the way, our customers want us to be a growing company because they're investing in us. So they want us to be successful. And they also wanna make sure though that what they're paying for, they're getting the value from. And that's really how we try to balance that.
0: That makes a lot of sense. There's an interesting comparison here with the recent category of generative AI. So currently, if you look across some of those tools, it seems like some of the pricing is extremely low. And I know that's part of being an emerging market and you know winning market share and, and actually growing the category itself. But I, I do think it's a really o- easily overlooked area of a huge opportunity for marketers. So if this is the role, and and I sometimes ask people, what's the role of marketing in their business? And it sounds like the role of marketing at OneTrust is creating a category and actually the the role of business. How do you go about organizing a team to do something like that?
1: And I would say though the role for us, I would probably break it down. If I were to go at the 100,000 foot level, it's about driving awareness, affinity, and preference for our brand. And each one of those words is a different thing, right? Awareness, I know who you are, affinity is, I actually feel something. I have some kind of an emotional connection to your brand and preferences. I actually prefer you over others. I mean, the other big thing that we do is I, I talked about being partners in pipeline. It's accelerating growth. So how are we helping to build robust, good, qualified pipeline that can turn into closed opportunities in business? And then, of course, the third thing that we do, it's all about building deeper relationships with our customers Because when you're really building these digital relationships with customers, it really is about how do I give you much more value? How am I helping you? So based on that, I can kind of tell you about how I organize my team. I am taking a functional approach. What do I mean by that? I have a brand team. I have a demand generation team. I have a digital marketing team. I have a marketing operations team. I have a communications team. And no one function can be successful without another. I have a product marketing and portfolio management organization. And so I've chosen to organize functionally. Sometimes you can organize different from that. It depends really on your business. If your company is very much focused on an industry or a few industries, you might organize your marketing organization in pods around industries. The beauty of one trust is we serve every industry in the world because every industry and organization in the world needs to respect privacy, security, they need to be ethical, they need to be compliant, and they need to worry about ESG and sustainability. So that's why I've chosen to organize around
0: functions. That's extremely sensible. And thank you for for including something you chose not to do there as well. It's a very useful frame of reference. There was something you mentioned there about the importance of bringing together functions to solve a problem. So yes, you might have your brand team, your digital team, et cetera, et cetera. But ultimately, and, and it's something I believe in very strongly that most significant commercial outcomes today can only really be achieved through bringing all these different functions together. Do you have any particular examples where these functions have come together to solve a significant business challenge?
1: Well, launching our new category was one. So we created a pod, like you have your brand and your web team, you have your product marketing organization, you have your communications organization getting involved, you have your digital marketing organization. So every single one of my members of my team, I had my marketing operations team had to make sure that we had technology in place. So every single one of those teams had a piece of what that big category launch was all about and worked beautifully together. I can give even smaller examples, campaigns. We create pods. And so what you get is you get somebody who's like a UX designer for the website. You get a web marketer, you get a product marketer, you get a digital marketer. People come together in a pod around a campaign to make sure that it's launched into the marketplace. It's instrumented, you're tracking, is it working? Is it not working? How do we adjust based on the analytics? And so that's how my team comes together in different pods. And oh, by the way, it's not just marketing that's in those pods. We'll pull like somebody who's a strategy leader from another organization or a product manager from another organization, or even a salesperson who can come in and really give you great information about, this is what the conversations these are the questions I'm being asked. Here's how I think your campaign could resonate more if you maybe use some of the words that the customer is using with me.
0: That is music to my ears, and I'm smiling because that reflects exactly how we approach things as well as an agency. So it's really lovely to hear, hear you doing that at One Trust.
1: You're listening to How to Grow a CMO, brought to you by The Marketing Practice. The world's leading B2B agency focused on tech clients and commercial outcomes. Find out more at themarketingpractice.com.
0: Moving on now to your influencer's inspiration and approach. Do you have any particular marketing heroes, whether that's people you look up to or authors or um, people you've worked with?
1: I don't have just one. I am what I would describe, uh, I'm an avid reader, and I like to consider myself a lifelong learner. I've always been very curious. I love to learn new areas, new spaces, and take on new challenges. And that's one of the reasons why I love to read. So I would say there are some books that have been wonderful. I, I think of things like Think Again by Adam Grant. I really like that. I like the way it makes you think again about certain things and look at it from a different perspective. That book I mentioned to you, Marketing is Not a Black Hole, which it talks about the relationship between the CMO and the CFO. Um, that book, Play Bigger. There, there's so many different books that I've read, books on content marketing, how to be better with content marketing. So I, I like to look at all of those just because I like to challenge the way I'm thinking about things. And I like to say, oh, here's a different approach. This is a different way to look at the problem. At the end of the day, I'm a problem solver. I love to solve problems. And so I like hearing new ideas, different innovative approaches. And so that's what I really like to do as a marketer. And quite frankly, the other thing is I rely on my peer group. I have just wonderful people that I can work with. Um, I'm a member of Chief. And so you can get together with different executives and just hear about how people are going about solving different problems, not even if it's just marketing problems, but just leadership in general. Which I think just helps you be better as a leader, and then you can actually do better marketing from that as well.
0: Are there any podcasts or publications you go to on a frequent basis where you find useful tips or inspiration?
1: I love to listen to different TED talks, so I I do that a lot. You know, I subscribe to some of the technology blogs as well, uh, just to make sure that I'm staying up on trends. You know, you talked about generative AI. I like to stay on top of generative and responsible AI. So all of those I. Th- kind of put into the mix of what I'm listening to and what I'm reading and that I think just helps you have a more well-rounded background.
0: It's great to hear about you pulling in influence and inspiration from from outside the idea of marketing whatever that may be and I often find some sort of people who join our agency are, are sometimes slightly confused when one of the first things I talk to them about is psychological safety and, and vulnerable leadership. Um, you know why is that going from, from somebody involved in marketing but actually it's been one of the most useful and usable principles or ideas I've learned about as a marketer, both in terms of how we organize our own teams, but also how we think about customers' organizations. You know, how it's a great way of thinking about how to accelerate a deal cycle is by increasing the psychological safety of the deal team and things like that.
1: Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, you know, I remember my previous company, I had the buyer. So this was somebody who had a C level title, said, you know, Lisa, one of the reasons why we bought from you is because our companies have similar values. And the value system was important to them because she said, who we buy from is a reflection on our brand. So we really have to think about that. We we need to make sure that our values are aligned as a company, that people actually know, um, what is your culture? How do you interact with each other? How do you treat each other? What is your impact that you have on people and planet? And I know things think sometimes everybody understands how much that can actually have an impact. When you are building a relationship and selling to a customer, they want to know that there is brand alignment and that there's value
0: alignment. Absolutely. There's a lovely quote from a CEO I was speaking to recently who said, suppliers can be either a vendor or a partner, and I work with partners. And that's something I always come back to in terms of exec engagement, that alignment of vision and values, like you say, can be easily underestimated.
1: Yeah, there's a, a model. It's more of a sales model, but it's called Layer L A E R land, adopt, expand, renew, a lot of markers might be familiar with it, but there's a couple of letters in there that to your point, it's not that you just land a customer and you say, okay, great on to the next. They have to adopt. They have a meeting that they have to use your product and they have to get value from it because if they're not getting value, you're never going to get an expansion. And in our case, you're not going to get a renewal. And so it's really a life cycle. And that's why it is this kind of a relationship. Because it's not just about, I won your business and I move on to the next thing. It's about how am I working with you and being a partner in your entire journey? I think you're a vendor if you just win an account and leave. I think you're a partner when you're a part of their entire journey, making sure that they are successful in getting value from what they have bought from you.
0: Absolutely. And I think customer lifecycle marketing is probably one of the, the major shifts this year, the, the increasing emphasis on that in a resource-constrained environment has become one of the things that I think our clients have, have spoken about most uh, to us and vice versa.
1: Yeah, there's another big trend, Ali, that I've been seeing, uh, it's first party data. So most marketers know that there's this, you know, deprecation of third party cookies and data over time. And really first party data is the gold for marketers. And why do I say that? Because if a customer is actually giving you their data willingly, that means that there's some level of trust there. And I think of it as a flywheel. If I give you some information and you use it responsibly, you use it to give me value in return. I would be willing to give you more of my data. And if I'm willing to give you more of my data, that means I can have a better, more personalized experience from you. I can get more value from you. And therefore you start this flywheel that's all based on trust and marketers have to start to rely on how do I collect first party data? And how do I build that trusted relationship so a customer allows me to continue to have this data, I can use it in a trusted way, in a responsible way, and that's how you can differentiate yourself out
0: in the marketplace. When we spoke previously, that reminds me of something you said, which was you have to roll around in the data, uh, which I thought was a lovely phrase. So I know that was one of your guiding principles as a marketer. Could you share what are your other guiding principles uh, as a marketer?
1: Yeah, we've thought a little bit about it, but and guiding principles as a marketer, right? Number one, you cannot be a great marketer if you do not understand your economic buyer. If you do not understand what keeps them up at night, what are their biggest challenges? So you need to know their market space as well as what's very important to them in their role. You can't serve a customer well if you don't know them, if you haven't really learned who the persona is, if you haven't talked to them and you don't understand what their their struggles are. So I always tell marketers know the customer, talk to the customer, learn the customer. You should know your economic buyer better than anybody else. The second principle, which I kind of said to you is, like, you can't be a marketer in 2023 and not be really comfortable with data. And I always tell marketers, you got to roll around in that data. You got to be comfortable with it and you got to roll around in it because you can't do the one size fits all marketing anymore. So you have to be comfortable with your data. Marketing is a very heavy digital activity. So there's so much data you're collecting. And again, we talk about first-party data, being able to collect that, understand how to l- leverage it to create better experiences. So if you don't understand data and you're not comfortable with data, it's very hard for you to build personalized experiences, deliver value, and have that increasing because you don't know how to evaluate what's working or what's not working. You know, the third principle I talked about was this flywheel is what I call trust-based marketing. Every marketer needs to realize that every interaction you have with a customer, whether it's one-to-one and in person, or if it's a digital interaction, either builds trust or breaks trust. And you need to think about, by the way, that's true for every employee in any company. Every interaction you have builds or breaks trust. It's one or the other, and you always have to be thinking about that. And then I think the the last thing I'd like to tell marketers as a principle is everybody has a different style. We kind of talked about the head, the heart, and the hand. I think last time I chatted with you, some people want you to appeal to them more on the intellectual basis, which is the head. Some people want you to appeal to them more on an emotional basis, which is the heart. Some people want you to appeal to them on doing, actually getting something done, which is more the hand. And I think you have to be versatile as a marketer to understand that one size does not fit all.
0: I like that model a lot because it makes space for those different types of of people, exactly as you said. And, And too often, I feel in conversations, marketers can be drawn to choosing one thing over the others rather than making space for all three. You've worked in a variety of different businesses in many different contexts. How do you think about the way that you balance your resources as a CMO?
1: Yeah. So I think as a CMO, and I would say as any executive, but in particular when I've been a CMO, is I always start with our business strategy. So what are the markets that we're in? Are there specific industries that we're serving? What are our customer segments? What markets are we nascent in? So it's a newer market. What markets are we maybe a leader in? what businesses am I trying to incubate versus what businesses are ones that I'm trying to disrupt an existing leader that might be in that space, or I'm just trying to disrupt how work is done in that space. And so I think you have to look at all of those different nuances before you start to figure out how am I going to design my organization? How am I going to balance my organization? So if I'm trying to land versus expand, uh, I'm looking at all of that because there's different marketing motions that I'm going to put in place. So I never try to start with, some people look at, oh, my my program to my people spend. I don't start there. I start with the business, the business strategy, and then I start to organize and balance my resources. You know, sometimes people will say, well, if you're incubating a business or it's a new business, you probably should give it the least amount of resources. Maybe not necessarily. Maybe you actually have to invest a little bit more there because you're trying to break into a market because you think this could be your next billion-dollar business. So I think that that's why you have to take all those different business strategy? What's the competitive landscape? Also take a look at your product. I always kind of say, is it market ready, customer ready, product ready? Because if you have all three of those, you might have a different approach. If your product's not ready, then you might try an approach where you partner with somebody or you have an early access program. So there's all different motions that you would use depending on what the situation is. And that's how you have to balance. You have to balance based on your business strategy, what's your competitive landscape, and what are you trying to achieve in each of those markets?
0: Thank you. Do you ever look along any other axes as well, such as long-term and short-term, or is this always viewed through the lens of, I suppose it is, always viewed through the lens of what the business strategy ultimately is?
1: Well, my short-term and long-term lens is you. you typically have in your organization people who are looking a little bit more short-term. So, for instance... Somebody who's responsible for demand generation uh, is typically partnering very closely with the regional sales leaders to make sure that there's pipeline and that people are hitting their quarterly targets. So that tends to be a little bit more of a short-term lens where you're looking at maybe the next six months out. Depends on how long a sales cycle is, but you're basically saying, how much pipe am I building to ensure that I am contributing what I call marketing contribution to pipeline? Because usually sales is contributing, marketing is contributing. Inside sales is contributing to your pipeline, and that is very much a quarter-by-quarter kind of view. Whereas I think when you're trying to build brand and brand awareness, it's a longer-term lens or thought leadership. You want to be seen as a thought leader in the trust intelligence space. That's something that you're looking at over a longer time horizon. That's something that you say, you know what? I'm going to measure progress on that maybe year over year as opposed to month over month. I think marketing is one of those unique organizations that has to be strategic and tactical, and you have to be able to navigate between the two. Sometimes in a single day, you have to be able to fly at all different altitudes depending on what is the topic, and you have to navigate well between those altitudes every day.
0: There's one thing that I wanted to pick up on, which I thought was a really lovely point, which is using your measurement timeframe sensibly. So if you are in a meeting and you're measuring things week on week, and that's all you're ever measuring is that really the most useful frame to, to take to look at that problem versus you say, if you're looking at solving a long-term issue, sure, look at some of the leading indicators short-term, but actually are you looking at it at a wide enough, broad enough timeframe, which I think is, is such a valuable technique and so easy to overlook for marketers.
1: Yeah, usually when I'm in meetings, it's kind of interesting. I always say, are we all clear on the problem that we are trying to solve? Because it can be very interesting. I usually find that actually people do not have a common definition. So we spend some time to say, what is the problem that we're trying to solve? And then I usually say, what does success look like? And those answers are usually all over the board. But when you coalesce and agree and align on what is the problem you're trying to solve and what does success look like if you successfully solve that problem, then you have your measures and you know what you're going after. And then people know how to go execute because they'll say, you know what? We shouldn't be doing X, we should be doing Y instead, because this is what we're trying to achieve. It gives you focus, it gives you prioritization, and it helps you be much more successful.
0: It's great. I, uh, one of the interesting things I see in the modern world at large is how our mental models are often governed by our perception of space. So you tend to think of things as going up or down. So the, the funnel is a classic example. You know, the funnel we think of people, but customers essentially just falling into the funnel and falling down it. And we can just kind of leave them be and let us naturally fall down to the sale, which incidentally is at the bottom and the least important bit versus the awareness, which is at the top and the most important bit. And all these silly things that fall out of what is essentially obviously a very simple, simplified, simplistic model. And I think that idea of models shapes that thing in so many ways. And, And what you said there are a couple of seemingly quite small things that can have really outsized impact. Are there... Any other kind of small practical tips that you'd share with other CMOs or aspiring CMOs?
1: Yeah. And I like what you just said there, Ali, too, is, you know, when I think of the customer life cycle, I actually, the, the symbol I use is an affinity loop, right? Because we have to understand that a customer can be at any point in the life cycle on any given day and they could be at multiple places. As an example, I could be in the adoption or use phase of one of your products while I'm also considering something else. So I could be be getting aware of a new offering that you have or a new product that you have while I'm also implementing and using something that I already purchased from you. So you really have to look at it as an infinity loop because I can be anywhere in that life cycle or at multiple points in that life cycle at any given day or week. So one of the other things I like to use just for practical tips for marketers, and we've talked a little bit about that is relationships. You must have a very strong, collaborative, and balanced relationship with your head sales, with the head of finance, and with the head of product. I think those three organizations are critical. Mar- marketing is always like the glue. You work with every organization in the company. You work with the G and A functions just as much as you work with all the other functional areas. But I would say that sales and services, finance, and the product organizations typically tend to be the ones you work with the most. And that's where you have to have deep relationships, respected relationships, and collaborative relationships. You know, it's kind of funny. I was in a meeting the other day, and if you've been, you've probably already heard this expression, but it's one that I've heard a lot because I've been in marketing for a while. And a lot of times people will say, there's a lot of people who practice marketing without a license. And you kind of chuckle over that when I think Right. As marketers, we deal with that. It, it is a profession where you go get training, you get degrees in this. You have to learn a lot. But a lot of times people kind of just swoop in and say, Oh, I've got this great marketing idea or this is what you should do. Uh, I'm not saying that these ideas aren't good, but it's a lot easier to swoop in with a quick idea than it is to actually manage it every day and understand what the impact is of everything that you do. And so one of the things I like to tell my marketers is, Try not to get defensive about the folks that kind of want to practice marketing without a license, but listen to the idea, see what's good in it, and then make sure they also understand the bigger picture. For instance, we can't use that data. We don't have permission for that data. We don't have consent for this, or we've tried that before. You know, things like that, but also be willing to take in new ideas. So I guess the tip is be open-minded, but also make sure people understand that this is... Uh, oh, a well-trained profession. Just like nobody would expect a marketer one day to say, guess what? Um, I'm going to start writing code tomorrow. We, we understand that you need to have specific skills and be trained for that the same way you need to have specific skills and be trained to do great marketing. The other thing that I like to tell people, and this isn't just about marketing, but it's just in general, if you're going to present, respect your audience and prepare. I personally think that there's nothing worse than coming into a presentation, being unprepared, not knowing what's on your slides and reading your slides to your audience. I think it shows your audience that you didn't value their time enough to actually prepare and make sure it was worth their effort. So I always tell people, prepare and make sure you know your numbers, you know your analytics, you know whatever point that you're trying to make. The other thing I tell people is tell me what I need to know, not everything you know. And what I mean by that is, is that You don't know your audience. What do they need to know about this particular topic? Not everything you know about the topic because you'll lose people. And I think the last tip I would give people is hire well. I think one of the most important jobs of any leader and manager is to hire well. It is your job to bring in phenomenal people, people who are more talented than you are because as a leader, you have to get things done through other people. So you have to hire well. You have to invest in team dynamics And you have to make sure that you have a very strong, high-performing team. And that is a big job for any leader.
0: There are a couple of things there that made me think of a game that I like to play, which is the everything is a game. doesn't sound like a lot of fun, but actually it can be very useful. So you you mentioned, think about the customer journey as a a loop. And a head of digital experience often says everything is a loop and and everything is a loop uh, for him. No matter what happens, everything is a loop, which is quite a fun way of thinking about the world. One of the the other things it can be useful to do is everything is a product. So to your point about thinking about your audience, telling them what they need to know, not everything you know, how is your presentation of products and how is it useful for them? What's the user experience? And it's just quite a useful way of looking at analysing different things from different different perspectives. And I, I absolutely love that point you made about hiring their particularly useful question that you've said, I think to me previously around finding the three audiences, your boss, appear, direct report and seeing what what would they say your big strength or development area is, which is a lovely way of getting people out of their own heads um, and getting to be more direct and more honest about things.
1: That's right. It's it's easier to get people to open up, I think, in an interview if they have to talk about themselves in the third person. So I love to ask people a question in an interview like, you know, you and I chatting about, which is, right, for your boss, your peer, and your direct report, what do they think your biggest strength is? What do they think your biggest development area is? And you tend to get very transparent and honest answers to those questions when somebody can think about it from, oh, what would my boss say? What would a peer say? What would a direct report say? As opposed to, what would you say about yourself?
0: I love it. I'm absolutely using it in every interview going forward. It's brilliant. If it's okay now, just... Slip into the final part of the interview, which is a quick fire round. So we insist on short answers if that's okay. So first of all, complete the sentence. The qualities I look for in my next exceptional hire are.
1: Uh, Leadership skills, ability to execute, and collaboration skills.
0: I often say that the only problems that worry me are the ones that I can't see. So I try to be open with my team about any challenges that I have or mistakes that I make to create a space where they're comfortable doing the same. In the spirit of transparency, What's the mistake that you've made in the past couple of weeks?
1: Uh, let's see. Um, I think I decided to take a, an approach of where it was better to ask for forgiveness than permission for on something. And I think because the topic was a bit of a lightning rod, I probably should have tried a different approach.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Thank you. There's a whole story there for another time. What is something that most people get wrong about you?
1: Uh, I'm a quick start which means that I love to solve problems. I think sometimes people misunderstand that for, I just want to jump to the first solution versus looking at exploring all of the alternatives and then landing on the answer. It's just because I love to solve the problem. So I can't wait to get on to solving it.
0: That's definitely something I can empathize with. What are the three technologies you're most excited about over the next 10 years?
1: Right, well, the first one will not be a surprise to you. It's automating components of trust. So how do you automate the trust experience? Uh, I think responsible AI, so everything that's going on with AI, generative AI. And how do we make sure it's not going to be biased in the future? That's a huge one. And intelligent automation, I think, would be would be another one.
0: Finally, what's one piece of advice or one idea, either about marketing or about life in general, that you keep coming back to?
1: I'll give a life in general one. Uh, you just made me think of this. In, in my uh, early career, I remember going to a conference where somebody said everybody needs to have their own personal brand tagline that is something that they anchor to for their career. And uh, I wanted it to be something short and pithy and memorable. And so my personal tagline for my career was, make a difference. And that's what I try to anchor to all the time. I have been since my early career is what I want my brand to be about is that you know, Lisa made a difference.
0: Fantastic. Lisa, thank you very much for being with us today.
1: It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed the discussion. You've been listening to How to Grow a CMO. The full season of How to Grow a CMO is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on the marketingpractice.com/podcasts.